worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. My dear cardio nerds, this is Amit Goyal. Welcome back to the Cardio Obstetrics series brought to you in collaboration with Women Heart. Today's episode is a very important discussion about black maternal health with Dr. Rachel Bond. We discuss the atrocious race-based inequities in the context of cardio obstetric care and health outcomes, covering epidemiology, ideologies, and solutions, ending with guarded hopefulness. This episode is developed in collaboration with the Association of Black Cardiologists, an organization which has really spearheaded the effort to address these issues with education, research, and even legislation, with Dr. Rachel Bond leading the vanguard. A special thanks to Dr. Sharon Hayes for suggesting this topic and connecting us with Dr. Bond, to Dr. Victoria Thomas, FIT Ambassador from Vanderbilt University for leading this discussion with her passion for health equity, and the co-chairs for the Cardio Obstetric Series, Drs. Natalie Stokes and Sonia Shaw, FIT Ambassadors from UPMC and UT Southwestern. A special thank you to Cardio Nerds Academy intern Christian Fabrick anderson for his amazing audio editing for this episode. Remember everyone, Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. You can claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description and relevant speaker disclosures and amazing show notes are available on the episode show page. If you find the show helpful, please do help others find the show by rating and reviewing this show on your favorite podcast app. And hey, everyone, before jumping into this episode, we are so excited to tell you all about the Cardiners Clinical Trials Network, created with a mission to marry equitable trial enrollment with fellow personal and professional development. We now have a team of 15 Cardiners Fit Trialists and PI mentors across from different institutions to support Paraglide H with mentorship from lead PI, Dr. Robert Mentz. Our extraordinary fit trialists are nominated by site PIs for their accomplishments, academic inclinations, and of course, nerdiness. And today, I am so proud to welcome Dr. Christabel Nyange from Morehouse University, who was very enthusiastically nominated by her PI mentor, Dr. Melvin Eccles. Christabel, welcome to the CardioNerds family. Would you please introduce yourself and share what you're most excited about as a fit trialist? Thank you, Amit. So again, I'm Christabel Nyange. I'm currently a PGY4 General Cardiology Fellow at Morehouse School of Medicine. I was born and raised in Tanzania, and I went to medical school at Ross University School of Medicine. This sort at the time it was in Dominica, and I did my residency at Hospital Northwell Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City. I'm interested in advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology fellowship. I'm excited to be part of this FIT trialist network. I not only get a chance to meet other fellows in training from other institutions, but I also get to work with them on clinical trials. So, you know, starting fellowship, I didn't anticipate being a part of this big network of fellows interested in clinical trials. But thanks to Amit and Dan and the CardioNerds community, we got connected with amazing mentors who are also clinical trialists. So we sort of get a one-on-one mentorship from people who have gone through the same training that we are currently in. And we get to learn from them, learn their mistakes, learn their challenges to kind of better the future of cardiology and the future of clinical trials. So I'm very excited to be part of this FIT Fellow in Training Clinical Trialist Network. Well, Christabel, it is amazing having you on the team and you are just too kind. You know, you are really unique among the FIT trialists in that you were already involved with the Paraglide HF 
trial as a sub-investigator, or as the cool kids say, a sub-eye. So could you share with us what it means to be a sub-eye for a trial? And would you recommend others finding a mentor and connecting with the trial in this capacity? Right, absolutely. So um, this Paraglide Trials, Dr. Eccles actually introduced it to me even before I moved to Atlanta to start fellowship. I we spoke over the phone one day. He asked me what my interests were and when I told him that I was interested in advanced heart failure, he mentioned that there's this trial that he wanted me to be a part of. And I actually didn't really know at that time what it meant. So when I moved down here to Atlanta, remember I think this was maybe August, so he gave me a month <laughs> to kind of get adjusted to fellowship and he was like, okay, now we have to get going. He introduced me to the whole team and I've been participating in meetings every Thursday morning talking about, okay, where are we at with maybe recruiting, where are we at with the pharmacy staff and also trying to get everybody on the same page because we had to go through the whole trial protocol figure out whose um, responsibilities it was to kind of like maybe get the medications for the trial and all that. So it involved a lot of groundwork to begin with, kind of getting everything rolling. And I also had to be part of this roundtable, which I didn't even know when they started talking about roundtable meetings, but apparently it's everybody who is involved in the trial. We sit and we go through all the responsibilities for each person, checking, kind of like going down a list, checking what we've done, what we have not done. I sat down with Dr. Eccles, went over the budget, which I didn't think I would be doing, you know, um, just trying to figure out, okay, so how do we allocate funds? So I think it was a pretty fun experience now that I think back in hindsight. It's not just work, it's, it's also fun. So yes, I would definitely recommend people to kind of find a mentor, work with them just to see the behind the scenes process into what it takes to actually start recruiting or be part of a clinical trial. So I've learned from that and now I kind of have an idea. And I think it's also useful for the future when you're thinking of like, okay, we're not going to be fellows forever. We want to be attendings and maybe we want to create our own trial. So it kind of gives you an idea of what it takes to get there. So I think it's very beneficial for fellows to find mentors and try to find somebody to work with to kind of see what the process is like. Yeah. Wow. Geez. That sounds like a great experience with Dr. Eccles and great advice for others seeking mentorship. You really hit the ground running in your first year of fellowship. It's really, really impressive. Christabel, one of our favorite aspects of Cardiners is that we get to work with people of all sorts of backgrounds. And you just mentioned that you were born and raised in Tanzania and came to the U.S. for college. And I know that you went to a college in Arkansas. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? What was it like during that transition? Was there a culture shock? I have no idea. (laughs) Right. So yeah, thanks, Dan. Yeah. So definitely it was, it was a big shock for me because first of all, I didn't even know what Arkansas looked like. The only U.S. I saw was the U.S. they showed us on TV, which I think most of it was New York. So imagine when I landed in Arkansas and then looking around, I was like, okay, where am I? (laughs) It was literally in the middle of nowhere, but I, I'm actually grateful for that experience because it got me to where I am right now. I mean, I went to college and got a chance to go to medical school. And here I am as a cardiology fellow. Definitely was a shock. And I think I learned from all that. I learned to adjust to different environments. And here I am. Yeah, Chris, well, that's amazing. One of my sisters who I always looked up to is 10 years older than me. And we moved from India just as she was transitioning into college. And I saw firsthand how academically, culturally, socially, 
it was a really challenging time to move to a totally different country. And for you to have gone through that experience and to be a star fellow at an incredible institution, being a sub-I in a trial as a first-year fellow, that arc is totally impressive. And it's just an honor to have you as part of this team. And we are so very excited about working together and learning from one another as we empower trainees in the conduct of clinical trials. So thank you so much for joining us in this. Thank you, Ahmed, and thank you, Dan. I'm looking forward to continuing to be part of this Cardio Nerds community. But today, I'm especially excited to listen to Dr. Bones talk about maternal mortality. So fun fact, Dr. Bones worked at Lenox Hill Hospital, but I never got a chance to work with her. She left Lenox Hill, I think it was the fall of my intern year, and I heard all these great things about the attending who left. So I'm excited to hear what she has to say about maternal mortality, and I know she's a very wonderful person, so I'm all excited. So let's dive right in and get nerdy, everybody. Hello again to my fellow nerds. It's Natalie Stokes, along with one of our favorite founders of Cardio Nerds, Amit. We're here with one of our amazing Cardio Nerds ambassadors, Victoria Thomas. She is a cardiology fellow at Vanderbilt University. She completed medical school at the University of Chicago School of Medicine, followed by residency training at Indiana University. She's fervent about medical and patient education, along with promoting health equity and decreasing health disparities. She's currently planning on completing a T32 within her fellowship to a master's degree of science in clinical investigation to help further promote increased diversity within clinical trials. Her research interests are curriculum development, cardiac ATTR, cardiac obstetrics, and coronary artery disease. She's planned a phenomenal discussion for us today. So welcome, Victoria. Hey, hey, everyone. I'm so thrilled to be here today to represent Vanderbilt University as a proud Cardio Nerds ambassador. And I'm even more thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. Rachel Marie Bond, our faculty expert. Dr. Rachel Bond is a board-certified attending cardiologist and the Women's Heart Health Systems Director at Dignity Health in Arizona. She has devoted her career to the treatment of heart disease through early detection, education, and prevention. She obtained her medical degree and completed her internal medicine residency at NYU School of Medicine. She finished her cardiovascular disease fellowship at Hofstra North Shore Long Island Jewish Health System, where she had a large exposure to interesting clinical cardiac cases. This has led her to become the author of several review papers referencing sex and gender differences and cardiovascular conditions that predominantly affect women, along with opinion pieces aimed at addressing health equity, reducing health disparities, and promoting the professional development of women and minorities in the health science profession. Dr. Bond has a passion for advocacy, education, and mentorship, and has advised as an export source by news and media outlets. Her clinical interests include heart disease prevention, the non-invasive evaluation and treatment of heart disease, pregnancy-related heart conditions, and lipid disorders. Her research interests currently include the heart-mind connection and cardio-rheumatology. Dr. Bond is a fellow of the American College of Cardiology, a member of the American Society of Preventative Cardiology, and American Heart Association, where she is a national spokesperson for the Go Red for Women campaign and sits on the board of directors. She is also on the leadership council for the Women in Cardiology section of the National Branch of American College of Cardiology. She lastly recently had the honor to present her efforts on Black maternal health in partnership with the Association of Black Cardiologists to the Biden-Harris Health and Human Services Transition Team. So what an honor it is to have her being able to share a moment with us after speaking to our current administration and how we can improve Black maternal health. 
Thank you so much, Victoria, for the amazing introduction. I'm looking forward to speaking with you today. So, Dr. Bond, it, again, it's really great to finally meet you. And you've done such amazing work in promoting efforts to advance health equity and especially within Black maternal health. Before we continue, I have to ask you, do you love R&B music? I'm actually really interested in a different variation of music and R&B is definitely a part of that, but I'm more eclectic and kind of can go ranging from anywhere, pop music, rock music, pop soul, and as well as R&B. So R&B definitely has a place in my heart without a question. I'm glad to hear that you love all genres of music because there's a lot of songs that came to my mind when I was reading your recent article in circulation entitled Working Agenda for Black Mothers, a position paper from the Association of Black Cardiologists on solutions to improving black maternal health. Several R&B, soul, and pop songs came to my mind as I read. However, this is the first song that came to my mind when I read the title of your article. It's a little soulful. This song came to my mind because I identify as a Black woman, so this song spoke to me so much as I talk about starting a family, and I just really hope more physicians are really thinking about what is driving the significant difference of Black women's maternal mortality rates compared to white women. What do you think of when you hear this song, and what drives you and your passion and advocacy of Black maternal health? I love the fact that you actually chose this song because, you know, if you actually listen to the words, Aretha Franklin is asking others to think about what they're trying to do to her. And we know that when it comes to the Black maternal mortality crisis, a big factor is that we're not thinking about these Black women. We're also not listening to them and their concerns. And that's something that we are really trying to vocalize the importance of. The fact is, is that most women do know their bodies very well, and they know when they may be having symptoms that are just not your routine basic symptoms of pregnancy. Sometimes it's a little bit complicated to figure out, but you have to make sure that you have that trusting relationship with your clinician. And that's where acknowledging the concerns of these mothers and also their family, their friends, those that are going to advocate for them are part of the process. So I think it's perfect that we started off with this song because it really, I think, is going to highlight the conversations that we will have, which at the end of the day is acknowledge these Black women and their concerns because the likelihood is that they're real. Dr. Bond, I just have to reiterate how honored we feel to be speaking with you about this area right now and how inspired we are because you know, you took an area that you're passionate about, which is important for all of us. And I think with advancing care within any domain, you need to have a multi-pronged approach. And usually you need to have a big team to kind of fill every facet within that multi-pronged approach. But you yourself, you're doing it all. Like you're educating people about this. You're researching and publishing about this. You're also involved in the policymaking end of this area. So I just congratulate you for, you know, not only having the passion, but the drive to be a change maker in this field. But to get to what we're talking about, there has been much discussion in academic medicine on using race in contemporary research. What are your thoughts on this? And is using race necessary when discussing maternal health? 
Yeah, so I think it's first important to acknowledge the fact that the concept of race is actually really flawed, right? When we think about how we're using race right now, it's really more so focusing on the biology and the genetic makeup of it. But that's really not an appropriate measure because when we really delve into it, it's going to lead to an over-reliance of that and undervaluing the other aspects, which include the socioeconomic status, the geography, even stress, specifically when we talk about the maternal mortality crisis, all things that circle around something called the social determinants of health. So although race is important, we have to realize that, again, it's the broader part of what that race encompasses, which are really more the social and personal aspects that 60% of the time really do dictate one's health. So in the previous podcast for this series, I've noted that we as physicians need to highlight the issue of rising maternal deaths, especially those of us who serve diverse communities. What do you think are the reasons for the rising maternal mortality rates in the United States? And why do you think it disproportionately affects Black women? So that's a really great question. So one thing I'd like to highlight is that we in the United States are the only industrialized country to date that have the highest rates of death, not just in pregnancy, but also up to one year postpartum. And that's the most important thing to factor in because it does extend up to that one year postpartum period. Now, why is it disproportionately affecting women of color? And we know that particularly black women are three to four times more likely to die during their pregnancy. The fact is it's a combination of a series of things. It could be at the patient level, at the community level, at the provider level, but most notably it's at the system level. There's a failure within our system because of the longstanding systemic racism and structural racism that we see. That's at the core of this. And this is something that we have to acknowledge because consciously or more likely unconsciously, there are biases in these patient populations. And when we have somebody who we know, particularly in a condition that we know is preventable 60% of the time, we have to do a better job and not just educating and finding these diseases that may place them at a higher risk for these poor outcomes sooner. But we also need to make sure that we're treating them the same way we would be treating anybody else, irrespective of their gender, but more importantly, their race and ethnicity. Yeah, so there's some systems issues that we need to identify and target. You know, this episode is primarily focused on Black maternal health, but Dr. Bond, what other vulnerable groups would you say have increased maternal mortality rates as well? And what are some of the social determinants of health that these women share in common? And you started touching on this a little bit earlier. Yeah. So in addition to other women of color, we know that the Native American population has very similar rates of death when it comes to pregnancy, as well as postpartum morbidity and mortality. Beyond that, we know that other vulnerable populations include veterans, women that are incarcerated, and also women in rural communities. Rural communities more so because of the fact that they have less access to these higher risk specialists, as an example, or more intense or higher risk procedures if necessary. And that really brings to the effect of these social determinants of health. When we think about social determinants of health, we know that they're best defined as where we grew up, where we were raised, where we work, and also where we live. We have to factor into that food deserts, having or access to high quality food is going to disproportionately make a lot of these populations have higher rates of more traditional risk factors like blood pressure issues, diabetes, high cholesterol, 
It also will make them have higher rates of stress. So they're more prone to poor vices like smoking, drinking alcohol in excess, all of things that eventually will also lead to higher rates of obesity, which again can really factor into their overall, not just fertility, but outcomes once they do become pregnant and as they go through that pregnancy and that postpartum period. So it's really important that where we grow up and how we have access even to equitable care and health care, it's not just a matter of having health care, but you want to make sure that we're providing them with appropriate and equitable and really good health care. Because it's one thing to have a physician, but it's another thing to have a physician that is actually looking for these conditions and treating them effectively and appropriately. And I think that that's what we're noticing at the end of the day is contributing to the vast majority of the time to the poor outcomes that we're seeing in these vulnerable populations. That's great, Dr. Bond. And it's really resonating with a lot of the lessons that I'm walking away from the series. You're talking about a lot of this depends on the environment somebody grows up in. I'm reminded of Brandy Taylor. We did an episode with Dr. Hayes and Dr. Wenger with Women Heart Champions, and one of them was Brandy Taylor. And so Brandy is a Native American. She's a remarkable woman. She was actually a leader within her Native American reservation. And in her first pregnancy, she started developing shortness of breath, and she was told to get over it. This is the first time you're pregnant. You know, you just don't know what are the things that normally come along with pregnancy, but she just like kept on getting worse and worse. And, you know, there was no specialized clinic in her reservation, right? And she lives maybe a couple of hours from San Diego. So they had to drive so far for her to get evaluated. And they realized on that first visit that she was like critically ill. She was essentially in borderline cardiogenic shock and she was diagnosed with peripartum cardiomyopathy. Ended up with a heart transplant and thankfully is doing very well now. But she spoke so eloquently about how it was just so challenging, you know, being in a reservation with a lack of expert care. And the difficulty was going back and forth, especially with something as involved as having a heart transplant. So she actually moved to a city for some time. But at the same time, the community that she is surrounded by is so strong. And she also talked about how the support from the community was so important for her. But really, I can see how the environment that she was in impacted her care as she went through that. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it just highlights again the issue at hand, which is that we're not doing a good job listening to these mothers when they are pregnant. It's one thing to say that shortness of breath is common, and it is common during pregnancy. But when you have that perseverating, consistent, ongoing shortness of breath, that's when it becomes a problem. And with respect to peripartum cardiomyopathy, It is the leading cause of maternal mortality at this point in time. And it's something that we really need to acknowledge, screen for, and do a better job at the end of the day of thinking about, do we have tools even earlier on that can help us, such as maybe a brain naturetic peptide, right? A BNP, getting a baseline, considering trending it, depending on if a person maybe has risk factors that you think would put them at a heightened risk in the future or as their pregnancy progresses of getting peripartum cardiomyopathy. So her story, Brandy's story, is a very, very unfortunate story, but it's one of many women. And that's why getting the message out there, and I do applaud you all in terms of this episode, because it really puts a face to particularly what these women are encountering. But more importantly, it hopefully provides sound solutions as what we can do as clinicians and as community members to really help change the statistics that we're seeing. You know, Dr. Bond, I actually love that you bring that up about risk factors outside of social determinants of health. Are there other critical risk factors driving these disparities among maternal mortality rates? And 
which of these would you say are more preventable or something we as physicians can educate our patients on? Yeah, so we know that 50% of women have at least one risk factor for cardiovascular disease when they're entering pregnancy. And those common risk factors include elevations in their blood pressure, diabetes, cholesterol, smoking, even, you know, alcohol in excess and obesity. And we know that by the time we get to two of those risk factors, it's even about 25% of the population that has it. Having these risk factors don't only affect one's fertility and ability to actually get pregnant, but it also could put them at higher risk for adverse pregnancy outcomes. And that's where preconception counseling is so important. Because if we see a female that has any of these risk factors, we want to make sure that we optimize them, that they're ideal, that they're well-managed, and that we're at least having conversations with them if it's predominantly focusing on lifestyle, what that looks like making sure that we're encouraging the mother prior to her pregnancy to at least exercise 150 minutes per week of some form of moderate exercise, eating a more plant-based or plant-predominant diet, trying to lose weight, right, if they're overweight or obese, something that, again, not only can affect their fertility, but also place them at a higher risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes. One thing I want to stress is that we also know that many of our patients now just because of cardiology and our advancements may have congenital heart disease. And that does also place them at a higher risk of having complications during their pregnancy. And we need to work more closely with our obstetricians, our high-risk obstetricians, and sometimes even our adult congenital specialists to make sure that we're supporting these ladies through their pregnancy. And the best way to make that plan prior to them actually conceiving. So in that preconception period where we could have the opportunity to reduce 60% of the time these poor outcomes. So interesting. Thank you. Actually, throughout this series, that theme has come up again and again. And I don't think that's something that cardiologists are typically attuned to thinking about. But when your patients, especially your young female reproductive age patients, have any sort of risk factors, keeping that in mind and having early preconception counseling has such a tremendous impact. So thank you for clarifying that. Are there any health-related differences or psychosocial differences that we see in Black mothers when compared with other races? That's a wonderful question. And one thing that I think we need to emphasize is that it's not just even Black mothers, but Black women in general, that the effects of stress is something that we haven't studied as well as we really should, because the fact is, is that that really may be leading to a predisposition to risk factors, specifically a predisposition to cardiovascular disease or even cognitive impairment. And in the position paper through the Association of Black Cardiologists that I'm the lead author of, that's something that we really wanted to highlight, this phenomenon called superwoman schema. And when you think about women, particularly Black women, we know that the stereotypes, the historical stereotypes, along with the oppression of not just being a female with the misogyny around that, but more so being a Black female with the structural racism that they encounter, that affects their sympathetic nervous system, that affects their ability to fight off or perhaps even produce too much inflammation. It also affects their hypothalamic pituitary access. And all of that increases their allostatic load, which eventually, again, could factor into their cognition as well as cardiovascular conditions. 
So it's really that stress, that chronic persistent stress, that unhealthy stress that is likely at the core, in addition, again, to that structural racism where we're seeing these poor outcomes in Black women in general. And it's really a focus of mine and interest of mine, even from a research perspective, on studying more ways of how can we capture this early and then hopefully work on reducing these levels of stress and figure out better ways to reduce these levels of stress so we have better outcomes. Well, it's interesting that you talk about the superwoman phenomenon, Dr. Bond, because again, as I was reading your paper, there was another song that came to my mind as I was reading, and this is what it was. And so I think this is a great time for me to actually introduce our first case that I would really love to get your expertise on. So Mrs. Piano is a 37-year-old African-American female who you recently started seeing for her stage one hypertension. She tells you that she and her husband have been trying to get pregnant. She has lost 10% of her body weight, follows a DASH diet. She's taking her hypertension medication. And she asks if her hypertension is really affecting her fertility. She's had no difficulties getting pregnant previously with her first child six years ago, and she's really wondering what potentially could be the cause of her infertility and is hypertension playing a role? Yeah, so that's actually a really important question and a question I get asked quite often, not even from the patient, but even from obstetricians. And we know that there is some data to suggest that elevated blood pressures can affect fertility. We don't really know the mechanism behind it, but we presume it has a lot to do with the perhaps decreased blood circulation to the uterus. And that in and of itself may affect the embryo from implanting at the time. But we also know that the vast majority of these patients that have chronic hypertension, meaning hypertension before they get pregnant, also usually have other risk factors that do predispose them to having difficulty conceiving and having fertility issues. So obesity being one of them. And in this particular case, Miss Piano, we hear that she has lost 10% of her body weight, not knowing what her body mass index may be that will have to factor in. In addition, we know that she is of what we would call advanced maternal age. Anybody above the age of 35 is considered advanced maternal age, and that can definitely play a role when it comes to fertility as well. So in this particular patient, I would talk to her about those different risks, and I'd also even talk to her about what this means when she does get pregnant, her risk of possibly having her blood pressure affect eventually going to preeclampsia something that we would want to avoid and maybe even consider starting her after she does deliver at about 13 weeks gestation on an aspirin, 81 to 162 milligrams per day of aspirin to really modestly lower her risk of preeclampsia. But I'd have that conversation with her and obviously support her as she's working on conceiving with her husband. Great. Thanks, Dr. Bond. And again, this just highlights that recurrent theme of focusing on preconception counseling in all the different contexts, you know, whether somebody has recognized cardiovascular disease or not. But speaking of that, you know, just as a cardiologist, what other counseling goes into your preconception counseling or in discussion with a patient who's considering pregnancy in general and particularly for Black women? 
Yeah. So I do want to stress that once I'm involved, the obstetrician has already identified these patients as being high risk, meaning that they're at a much higher risk of having adverse pregnancy outcomes such as hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, gestational diabetes, premature labor, and possibly even other adverse pregnancy issues. So what I usually do is always obtain a baseline electrocardiogram, and that at least gives us a nice idea of structurally what's going on with their heart. Beyond that, depending on their risk factors, I may also obtain an echocardiogram. In addition to the echocardiogram, I do focus a lot on lifestyle. And in our particular case, Miss Piano, the same thing would be that, hey, you know, it's amazing. You've lost 10% of your body weight, but let's see what your body mass index starting off really is. And can we lose perhaps even more? Can we lose another 10%? Can we make sure that you're maintaining a steady weight throughout your pregnancy? Can we make sure also that you have access to the ability to monitor your blood pressure at home? That's a big part of really helping us to identify any issues that are going to start earlier on because the patient can at least alert us if they start to see that those pressures are creeping upwards or they're going in the wrong direction. Beyond that, I encourage them to check their weight, make sure that they're having a well-balanced diet, and definitely exercise is such an important part. And we know that not just in terms of reducing their risk from a cardiovascular perspective, but exercise has been proven to also allow for prolonging their pregnancy and getting them out of that risk for premature labor. Yeah, so you're zooming out and looking at that patient holistically. You're estimating their risk of having an adverse pregnancy outcome. You're counseling them about lifestyle. You're thinking about ways to obtain this baseline assessment of their cardiovascular status. And you talked about EKG and ECHO, but just a quick follow-up. When do you consider getting a baseline BNP as maybe one of the few biomarkers that might help distinguish physiologic dyspnea in pregnancy versus pathologic dyspnea? Absolutely. So we really want to do a baseline, especially in mothers that may have suffered from peripartum cardiomyopathy in the past. Getting a baseline and also getting one immediately after their previous pregnancy is really important. Beyond that, we may want to consider doing it if they have risk factors for that peripartum cardiomyopathy. If we have someone presenting to our clinic who's having the mild shortness of breath of pregnancy, as an example, we may say, hey, getting a baseline at that time when we're noticing that other risk factors are adding on, be it gestational diabetes, gestational hypertension would be good because if they were to present again with signs or symptoms really concerning for peripartum cardiomyopathy, we have a comparison to look at. So Victoria, I am enjoying the tunes personally, so keep them going. When I think of Superwoman, I immediately think of Michelle Obama. She recently wrote about her struggles with infertility, which makes me wonder, do Black women or other minorities have the same rate of infertility compared with white women? So that also is a really great question. I want to stress the fact that all women of any race, ethnicity, creed, makeup, they suffer from infertility. The statistics actually show that one in eight women will suffer throughout their life for infertility. But what we know is, is that Black women are actually two times more likely than their Caucasian counterparts to suffer from infertility. A really common reason has a lot to do with the fact that they're more disproportionately likely to have fibroids. Fibroids, although something that we think at the end of the day is something that's easy enough for us to manage, actually could become not as easy to manage and it actually could affect one's ability to conceive. 
So in the Black community, there has been a taboo around infertility and really thinking about going to fertility specialists. A lot of this has to do with the fact that, one, the community itself is not aware of the options out there, but also I think us as health systems don't do as good a job in targeting the communities that require this fertility as much. And that's where, as a society, we do need to change that aspect of it, making sure that people are aware that fertility, although affecting all women, does disproportionately affect Black women. And here are the options that we have, be it in vitro fertilization, talking to a reproductive endocrinologist, looking for fibroids, polycystic ovarian syndrome, other things that could factor into the mix and making sure that we're managing those patients accordingly. Oh, wow. You know, Dr. Bond, that is something that, again, it's scary to hear, but that education piece is so important that we promote that with our patient. But I have good news in the fact that our first case patient, Miss Piano, actually is pregnant now. She's returned to your office and she's 16 weeks pregnant, but she tells you that she's actually been having difficulty controlling her blood pressure. She doesn't know if it's due to the stress at work. She recently got promoted at work and is now the first African-American partner at her law firm. She is fearful to tell her partners that she's pregnant. She just noted that she's just been gaining a little weight. And she's just wondering how will the stress of maybe potentially admitting that she's pregnant or will her race be a shortcoming at work? And how do you think the stress of all of this really is affecting her and her baby and her blood pressure? Yeah. And, you know, the likelihood is that it is affecting her and her baby and her blood pressure. And I really like the fact that we're highlighting that this case is expanding her horizon. And she obviously has gone through a graduate degree as she's in a law firm at this point in time, because it highlights the fact that the maternal mortality crisis is irrespective of one's socioeconomic status. Having a higher education, having a higher income, it does not protect you as long as the fact that you're a Black female in the United States, you're still at a very, very high risk of having poor outcomes when it comes to maternal health. Now, with our particular patient, Mrs. Piano, it would be important for us now that she's 16 weeks pregnant and she's noticing that her blood pressures are getting on the higher side to, you know, ensure that she was initiated at least on a baby aspirin if she hadn't been already, because she is at a more higher risk of having preeclampsia, something that we want to avoid as her pregnancy progresses. We also are going to want to make sure that she's checking her blood pressure at home with a home blood pressure monitor coming to the office rather frequently. And if this particular patient has not yet established care with a cardiologist, this may be an opportune time to have her obstetrician consider doing that. We may also want to consider getting her established with a high-risk obstetrician, such as a maternal fetal medicine doctor. So that way we are all collectively working as a team, thinking about the best delivery plan Beyond that, it would be a conversation with Mrs. Piano to talk about her levels of stress, not just as being a Black female, but also being someone in a very high position in her law firm and what that may mean to her. Because stress is a big part of where we're seeing these poor outcomes as well, as we talked about this superwoman schema. But beyond that, we know that stress definitely can affect one's ability to control their blood pressure. And we want to make sure that we talk to her about more positive and meaningful ways of her managing her stress and making sure that she's managing it in an appropriate way to help her improve her overall outcomes. 
gosh, it seems like Miss Piano is going through so much. And I'm thinking about even women in my family balancing busy careers and pregnancy. And on top of that, if there are health issues, it's just a lot to take in. Dr. Bond, could she benefit from additional layers of support? And I'm thinking about services we conventionally don't think to engage like a doula or a midwife. Yes. So the benefits of both doula and midwife is that we know that data has shown that women that have both actually have better outcomes when it comes to their pregnancy. When we think about a midwife, we know that they're usually a certified nurse and at some point in time they had nurse training and they a lot of times can be the bridge even when we think about those more rural communities where they may not have access to more specialized services. They could sometimes be that bridge to make sure that they connect those patients, especially in that higher risk category to those specialized services. The benefits of a doula is that they also work very closely with midwives, with obstetricians, with maternal fetal medicine doctors, as well as cardiologists and other people on the care team to make sure that they are advocating for the patient, asking all the appropriate questions that maybe the patient may not feel comfortable asking or won't even know what to ask. They're also making sure that the birth plan is in place because we know that if we don't have a plan, that's usually when we have poor outcomes. And that plan, again, could be advocated by a doula. But if there's not a doula involved in the case, that's really where the clinician has to think collectively about getting all the people on the care team involved to ensure that we not only provide assurance to the patient, but we're also coming up with a plan that's going to lead to the best outcomes at the end of the day. So Mrs. Piano, going back to our case, would probably benefit from a doula and possibly even from a midwife. She has an obstetrician on her case right now. I think the benefit would be most notably coming from the doula just as an advocate, especially as we know that Black women, the outcomes are usually best when doulas are involved because they do allow for that advocacy. But in the event she decides not to, her insurance doesn't cover it, or she personally doesn't feel it's necessary after speaking with her clinicians, it would be important that the clinicians take it upon themselves to at least provide her with a good delivery plan. So I know currently doulas are not covered by most insurances. As you just mentioned, that can be an issue for a lot of patients. But every patient does have a nurse that's part of their healthcare team. So how can nurses and other care team members play a role in improving maternal outcomes? Yeah, so nurses are honestly the eyes and ears, right? Even for us as physicians, but definitely for patients. And they have experience and they know that when patients are presenting with signs or symptoms that are concerning for cardiovascular disease, they're usually the first ones in the room to figure that out and at least bring it to the attention of the clinician. And that's where that advocacy comes into play as well. For the most part, we want to make sure that the nurse is also listening to the patient because they're more likely to be speaking to the patient because they're with the patient for a lot longer hours than even us as clinicians usually are. So I can tell you that the nurse is a large part of the care team at the end of the day. And a lot of it is centered around, again, just being very astute, the change in vitals, the change in symptoms, the persistency of these symptoms, getting the clinician to the bedside, figuring out, is there something that could be done? Should we be managing their blood pressure more aggressively, et cetera, but also advocating for their patient? And that's really where they come in. 
Dr. Vaughn, I absolutely agree with you. I actually went to nursing school and practiced nursing before I went to medical school. So I know that just being part of a care team, every member has a role and it's super important, especially in this phase. I, I am so pro-nursing and like love our nurses and everyone on the team because of it. So it's very true. But I have a new case for us. But before we start, I have a song to go along with our case. If you don't jump to put jeans on, baby, you don't feel my pain. Please don't give me hype. Write my name in ice. Can't argue with these daisy basics. I just raise my price. I'm a boss. I'm a leader. I pull up in my two-seater. And my mama was a savage. Look, I got this here from Tina. I'm a savage. Yeah. All right. Similar to Beyonce, our next patient, Mrs. Hive, she has recently delivered her baby and sometimes struggles jumping into her jeans as well after her emergency C-section due to preeclampsia, unfortunately. And she's referred to you because she continues to have lower extremity edema, her blood pressure has been uncontrolled, and she's starting to have more dyspnea on exertion. What else would you want to know about Miss Hive and what workup would you start for her? Yeah. So first thing I'd like to know is what happened during the pregnancy. It sounds like she was diagnosed with preeclampsia, but how many weeks gestation was she when she delivered? Was it preterm labor, which again, does place her at a slightly higher risk for poor outcomes? I'd like to know her age. I'd like to know how she lost her baby weight and has she at least started that process? Has she started to become more active and exercise? And if not, is it because she's having limitations? due to her symptoms, symptoms that may include pressure in her chest or shortness of breath. I'd like to know how bad the swelling actually is. I also like to know what her blood pressure is that we're dealing with because that could paint a picture as to is this patient who has had preeclampsia still experiencing preeclampsia with severe features, or do we have to now worry also about an additional cardiovascular complication such as a peripartum cardiomyopathy, et cetera, something of that nature. So knowing, is she sleeping with more pillows at night? Is she waking up in the middle of the night with paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea? All of that will be really important and objectively doing a very intricate exam to see if there's any evidence that there is fluid in the lungs, extra heart sounds or swelling in her legs or even elevations in her jugular venous pressure. All of that is going to be really important. Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, just because somebody delivers does not mean that cardiovascular complications related to pregnancy are over. In fact, that first full year is a very high risk time for many women after delivery. And so we actually did a full episode on what we refer to as the fourth trimester, kind of that time period after delivery, and spoke a little bit about ambulatory self-monitoring. It seems like for Mrs. Hive, she could use more follow-up and blood pressure monitoring at home. Has ambulatory self-monitoring been helpful in reducing maternal mortality? And are there any racial differences? Yeah, so this has been studied, and I think all of the data that we see is really encouraging that it has been helpful, particularly during COVID-19. I really do think the only silver lining that we're seeing right now is that telemedicine is here and it's not going away. If anything, we should expand the use of it. But beyond even telemedicine, telehealth, I think is important with applications as well. And we know that when we have somebody who really requires that close monitoring, the use of home blood pressure machines is so important. But beyond that, making sure that we as clinicians have access to the reading is even more important. 
And data has suggested that in the postpartum period, non-Black women are more likely to follow up in office visits than their Black counterparts. And because of that, they're more likely to have better controlled blood pressure measurements. So having the ability to not per se force the patient to come to the office because of maybe the limitations from society with the social determinants, access to getting to the doctor, or maybe even getting childcare as an example that could preclude them from going to the doctor's office is one way I think of helping and expanding. And beyond that, there was a recent study that looked at this back in 2018, and it was actually published in the Hypertension Journal, where they looked and randomized patients that were Caucasian versus Black. And what they saw was that the number of patients that had follow-up in the office were much higher in the non-Black arm. But when they actually had patients use home blood pressure machines with the use of text messaging, the amount of people that had follow-up were pretty equivocal. And what they did see was that the improvements in blood pressure readings was actually higher in the Black population. So that tells us that the use of telehealth applications and even text messaging services could really play a role in the disparities that we see, one from an access perspective, but even perhaps from an unconscious bias perspective as well, where we're going to be more aggressive in managing these patients because we don't necessarily have an opportunity to determine what their background is, just focusing in on the objective data and the numbers that could play a role as well. So that was a really interesting research trial that I think is, again, something that we could expand on even in our own healthcare field. Yeah, it's really exciting to think about how we can leverage telehealth and thinking outside the box to help bridge some of these gaps, improve access, improve health equity. And I'm thinking about two examples that come to mind. We spoke with Dr. Brian Smith, advanced heart failure specialist at University of Chicago, who's passionate about health disparities when it comes to advanced heart failure treatment. And in his patient panel, he takes care of a lot of young people who've had a non-escaped cardiomyopathy or peripartum cardiomyopathy is a case we were talking specifically about. But how you would say, look, like, you know, young people don't check their mail, right? And I'm so bad with mail myself. And so how he would just straight up text his patients as reminders to follow up in clinic or take their meds and stuff like that. And another really innovative example that comes to mind, you know, we recently spoke with Dr. La Princess Brewer in her community-based participatory research, developing the Faith mobile app to improve the health of a community of color in Rochester, Minnesota, partnering with community churches. So just incredible examples of thinking outside the box and using digital technologies to help fill these gaps in care. What are some other digital platforms that have been shown useful in reducing maternal health disparities, specifically Dr. Bond? I definitely want to highlight a few that we had an opportunity to work with as we were working on this position paper at the Association of Black Cardiologists. This position paper first started when we had a roundtable in June of last year, and I was one of the co-chairs for it. And we invited a digital platform called Mommy, M-A-H-M-E-E. And what they end up doing is really closing gaps in care. So what I mean by that is once the mother is in her pregnancy and is even venturing into the postpartum period, we know that it's really that postpartum period that's so pivotal and making sure that they have close follow-up and follow-through. 
What this application does is it connects these mothers to health professionals, be it in internal medicine, like a primary doctor, be it a cardiologist, to make sure that they close any of those gaps. And an area that this organization is now working on is actually focusing in on hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. So this is something that we at ABC and myself as one of the co-chairs of the Women and Children's Committee for the Association of Black Cardiologists, I feel really privileged because I'm helping them ensure that their application is very much focused on those underserved and underrepresented populations. Thinking about, again, not just the numbers, like what number cutoffs to worry about, but also the access and the social determinants that may factor into the poor outcomes. So that's a really great platform that we can think of. And beyond that, we also are working on an application at the Association of Black Cardiologists that would be very similar to do the same. And that's through initiatives of Dr. Elizabeth Ophelia, who is the chairman of the Association of Black Cardiologists, who also is a professor at Morehouse College. And she has created an application where our hope is that we'll be able to not just plug in the blood pressure readings, but also give the patients insight on the best way to manage them. So I'm really excited for the future when it comes to applications, and I'm definitely forward thinking in terms of encouraging my patients to use them in their care plan. I am not surprised that Dr. Ophelia and the ABC is just really taking over this niche and pushing this movement to improve. It's an amazing organization that I joined as a medical student. And Dr. Ophelia, I met her when I was interviewing for fellowship, and she's just, she's a powerhouse. And the Mommy app sounds just so phenomenal. And, you know, you mentioned in the article some toolkits that California has also developed to improve the quality of care and impact maternal outcomes. Can you tell us a little more about that as well? Yeah. So California, I think, is really ahead of the game when we think about all states within the United States. And they have a maternal quality care collaborative. And the intent of that was really a series of things. Cardiovascular was one part, but it actually expands to postpartum hemorrhage and other things that we know do place mothers at higher risk for poor outcomes. But focusing in on the cardiovascular part of it, they came up with really unique algorithms to make it easy enough for even when patients present to the emergency department to look for red flag symptoms, such as shortness of breath that's persistent, not going away, orthopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, making sure that any abnormal vitals, such as a heart rate greater than 120 beats per minute at rest or a blood pressure over 160 over 100 at rest as well, is something that would prompt that clinician to want to do more testing. That testing should include getting an electrocardiogram, considering getting a brain naturetic peptide, a BNP, and also thinking earlier on at getting cardiology involved in the care of the patient. We also know that there are some times when patients present with very vague symptoms But all of those vague symptoms still may be cardiovascular in nature. And that's where this toolkit really, I think, opens up the box and broadens our thoughts to say, hey, if you are a female and you've delivered even up to one year, you still could be at risk of having a pregnancy-related complication. Knowing cardiovascular disease is that leading complication, let's think outside the box that the mother coming in with shortness of breath, it may not be anxiety, it may not be asthma, it may be heart related. So let's consider getting that baseline electrocardiogram. 
let's consider getting a series of blood tests. And they really just very nicely walk you through what the risks look like and what that algorithmic approach would be. Everything ending with either an inpatient consult with cardiology or an outpatient follow-up with cardiology. Great. Thank you so much. So, Dr. Bond, I saw on your Twitter feed that you met recently with President Biden's transition team to discuss Black women's health. What other opportunities or work is being done at a national level to mitigate the rising maternal morbidity and mortality rates in the U.S.? Yes, and that was such an exciting venture for myself because it was really encouraging to see how interested in this particular topic that administration was. This was prior to them taking office, so they were transitioning into it, and they really are trying to take disparities in care centered around the maternal mortality crisis very seriously. A lot of the work that I've done beyond that, even from an advocacy perspective, has been with support of the Black maternal momnibus. That's through the Black Maternal Health Caucus. And as a member and chair of the Association of Black Cardiologists, that's something that every year we fully support. And I think the best thing about the momnibus is that it hones in on the importance of coverage in that postpartum period. And this is something that the Biden and Harris administration really want to, I think, set forth is extending even coverage of Medicaid from 60 days up to at least 365 days. Why is that important? We know that 50 percent of births are actually under Medicaid coverage. And once that 60 days hits, a lot of these mothers don't have access to insurance. And we know that in those vulnerable populations, having access to clinicians and specialists is so impactful. So one thing that at least I think is a step in the right direction that the Biden-Harris team is doing right now is setting forth the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021 which at least includes an option for states to extend postpartum coverage from 60 days to 365 days. I emphasize the word option because it's not mandated. And my hope is that eventually one day everyone will realize that it really should be mandated because we have to have that coverage, knowing that a third of mortalities are occurring in the postpartum. So my hope is that it will be eventually mandated, but I think it's really hopeful that at least we're having these conversations and it's at least an option at this point in time. Yeah, thanks for highlighting that, Dr. Bond. You know, I think our commitment to take care of one another and especially take care of maternal and child health says something not only about the health of a society, but the soul of a society. So I would hope that states avail themselves to that opportunity for their constituents. So, you know, Dr. Bond, as you know, we built CardiNerds to foster a community to democratize cardiovascular education. And a central part of that is our commitment to promote diversity equity, and inclusion. In your article, you mentioned that there needs to be a collaborative community approach to maternal care. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you meant about that? Oh, absolutely. And that really, I think, is at the heart of all of this. We know that trusted community members have to really be partners in this. And when they are partners, we have better outcomes. And what I really mean by these trusted community members, we've seen this even with the NHLBI community study that looked at the use of hypertension management, specifically in Black men. But they use their trusted members of the community, which were their barbers. We at the ABC are actually extending a lot of research to focus in on beauty parlors. 
Beyond that, we worked really well with the faith-based community, and we know that that's really the most trusted community members when you think about it, the churches and other faith-based members, and making sure that they provide the tools to these patients centered on education, but more importantly, empowerment is really going to help us not just in the preconception and antepartum and pregnancy period, but also in that postpartum period. And I think that's really the most important thing of the paper that I wrote was to ensure that it's across the spectrum of maternal health, from preconception all the way to postpartum, and how can we all work together, really with the patient in the center, to improve these outcomes and ensure that we have better outcomes at the end of the day. So I really can say that our faith-based community members do play a very large role in that, even from a trust perspective. Yeah, you know, I learned about the importance, but really the impact, the power of partnering with the community in improving the health of that same community. And we'll soon be releasing our discussion with Dr. La Princess for about her work with the faith-based community in Minnesota, as well as Nerissa Haynes, who is a general cardiology fellow at Penn and a FIT member uh, of the board for the ABC and her work with improving community health, partnering with barbershops. So really the, the two of them have had incredible impact and it's just so inspiring what you're able to achieve with that kind of partnership. Well, you know, Dan and I and the whole Cardiners platform are definitely allies in further closing the gap of disparities to improve all forms of cardiovascular care, at least from an educational and awareness perspective. So Dr. Bond, how do you think we can develop more he-for-she allies, she-for-she allies, just allies in general in promoting maternal care? I think we have to do that. And we know that we need our male colleagues to be part of the conversation because the fact is, at least in cardiology, men outnumber women, right, when it comes to even clinicians and physicians. And that being said, we need to make sure that our male colleagues are aware of the despairing numbers that we're seeing, that they're also aware of the need to incorporate and work closely with the obstetricians and other members of the care team, ranging from midwives, doulas, etc. But more importantly, that they feel comfortable having these discussions. Beyond that, though, I think it's important that our he for she's also bring forth the fact that we need to diversify our field more and bring more women to leadership roles, bring more women to research initiatives, because really the maternal mortality crisis, we really need to research it more as well. I talked a lot about this superwoman schema, and we know that in theory, it makes practical sense that when you have somebody under a grave amount of stress, that's going to lead to premature cardiovascular disease. But we need to study that more and actually, more importantly, study how can we fix this and how can we mitigate it. And that's where having more diverse women that are having the opportunity to take on lead research projects or even take on the opportunity to really educate their own health system plays a role. So I think all of us have to work together, not just the she for she's, but the he for she's as well. And that's why it was really important for us to add that into our position paper, because we know that the topics around maternal health are usually much more vocal from women. But I can tell you that my male colleagues, at least through working with me, feel just as passionate about it as well. Many of them have wives, many of them have mothers and daughters. And I think that realizing it's a crisis, we need all hands on deck. And that's the most important thing, because the more numbers we have, the likely better outcomes we'll have in the end. 
You know, Dr. Vaughn, again, I'm just very thankful that the work that you and the ABC are doing. Dr. Shanice Wallace was a Indiana University pediatric chief resident that I worked with briefly at my time during IU. And unfortunately, she had a complication. She had preeclampsia and, and we lost her very early within three days of the delivery of her daughter, Charlotte. And, you know, that is why this topic is not only personal, because I am a Black woman but it's also just super important for me to learn more about as a physician and as a cardiologist, but also hoping that we build on those allyships that you are discussing. And I have a feeling to wrap this up, and I guess I will say I have another song, and so I'll let them play that real quick. I'm so excited, and I just can't hide it. You know, I am so excited that this is getting highlighted and so much attention is being brought to it. I'm so excited to hear that President Biden and Vice President Harris's transitions team are making this a national highlight. You know, I'm so excited about the toolkits. And I know if Shanice was here, she'd be excited because I remember we did a White Coats for Black Lives Matter march that I led before I left. And, you know, she was talking about this issue and how she was afraid that she could be a victim. And unfortunately, she was. And so the silver lining of all of this and why I play I'm so excited is because you are giving me hope. This work that you are mentioning is giving me hope. And I just am so thankful for that. And I've learned so much about awareness and how we can reduce the amount of disparity when it comes to Black maternal health. So thank you. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. And I agree with you. I think we do have some ways to go in terms of when we're going to see a complete turnaround with this crisis. But I am extremely hopeful that we are actually going to get there much sooner than we anticipate, especially knowing that all the different avenues that need to be involved are actually involved. They're willing to have those conversations together. Going at even the top right now, our national society, that our own administration is taking this so seriously that they're advocating for the Black Maternal Momnibus Act, something that I really do think is going to put into law the extension of Medicaid making sure that we provide equitable care, making sure that we focus in on those vulnerable populations, not just from race, but also the veterans, those incarcerated, those in rural communities, and making sure from our end as clinicians, we're providing our providers with tools on what they could use to make sure that they manage these patients accordingly makes me very hopeful. And at the end of the day, the reason why this is such a passion for me is because it could happen to myself. It could happen to to my family. And I've seen so many young patients that it has happened to that it's enough because it's something that we can so easily prevent. Again, focusing on the fact that it's over 60% of the time preventable is really the focus for myself. And it's just a matter of making sure that we provide people with the tools on how to do that. So I thank you actually for giving me the opportunity to speak, say my piece, and also share the work that I have done with the Association of Black Cardiologists, which I'm very proud of. We so appreciate it. We clearly know what's getting Victoria's heart fluttering right now, but we need to ask you one more question before we let you go, Dr. Bond. What makes your heart flutter about cardio obstetrics? 
Yeah. So, you know, a lot of what I had said already is that this is a preventable crisis that we're seeing. And we really just need to acknowledge these mothers, particularly Black mothers, many voices of which we ignore. I personally can say that being a Black female in a field that is less likely to have somebody that looks like me, without a question, I've experienced this myself. So what makes me passionate about this is the fact that I know that we have an opportunity to change and make sound change and that until we see improvements, I'm going to keep advocating for it. I'm going to keep educating people and I'm going to, more importantly, keep doing research that allows us to hopefully figure out an easier way way to get these better outcomes that we're seeing. So that's really what drives my passion for this. And I know that there are so many other clinicians out there that have the same passion as me. And it's been amazing to work with each and every one of them. And again, we need as many hands on deck as possible. But I am very hopeful and I'm very positive, especially coming into this new year, knowing that there are so many different areas that are taking this crisis so seriously. Dr. Bond, we cannot thank you enough for your time, your wisdom, and your passion. I personally have learned a ton. Can't wait to share this episode with the Cardio Nerds community. I encourage everyone listening to read The Working Agenda for Black Mothers, a position paper from the Association of Black Cardiologists on solutions to improve Black maternal health. Thank you, Dr. Bond, for the important work you're doing to enhance cardiovascular health and for sharing your knowledge and passion with us today. Victoria, thank you for organizing a phenomenal discussion, being such a great fit lead for this episode. What a wonderful conversation. Enjoy, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics Series led by co-chairs and fellows in training, Drs. Natalie Stokes and Sonia Shah, and brought to you in collaboration with Women Heart, the National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. This is Dr. Sharon Hayes. I'm a non-invasive cardiologist at Mayo Clinic, where I founded and maintain an active practice in the Mayo Clinic Women's Heart Clinic. I've also been privileged to serve as a mentor and advisor to cardio nerds. With our partner, Women Heart, I have served as a patient advocate and an advisor for well over 20 years. What is Women Heart? It was founded by and for women. Women Heart focuses on serving the millions of women living with or at risk of heart disease, the leading cause of death in women. Women Heart is dedicated to advancing women's heart health through advocacy, community education, and supports the nation's only patient support network for women living with heart disease. As medical director of Women Heart Science and Leadership Symposium for Women with Heart Disease, each year I have the privilege of working with Women Heart to train a new class of women living with heart disease from across the country to become community educators and support group leaders. Since 2002, Women Heart has trained over 1,000 Women Heart Champions. Women Heart Scientific Advisory Council is comprised of renowned cardiologists, including many on this program, and offers membership in its National Hospital Alliance, a group of hospitals committed to providing gender-sensitive cardiology care and amplifying the patient voice in their care and treatment. This series is important to me personally since my clinical and research interests include sex and gender-based cardiology, spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD, health equity, and also increasing the participation of women and minoritized people in medical research. Through this lens, I know both how important and also how underemphasized cardioobstetrics has been. Cardiology has been late to own cardio-OB as a concept and important sub-subspecialty for us as cardiologists and for the women under our care. This series aims to change that. Why? For instance, in my own area of interest, SCAD, 
It may be considered rare, but it is the number one cause of pregnancy-associated myocardial infarction. Second, even if we only utilize what we know now, if that knowledge was truly and fully translated to practice, most cardiovascular disease and its complications related to pregnancy would be detected, better managed, and often prevented. Third, we have a huge knowledge gap. Women have not been included in medical research, much less reproductive and pregnant women. So the evidence we have to diagnose and treat and predict outcomes is often weak or even absent. And if we think we have insufficient data for women as a whole, there is truly a chasm to cross for as evidence to optimally care for women of color, particularly African-American women, whose maternal mortality is two to four times higher than that of white women. So some of you might be thinking, I already am or I plan to be a cardiologist. I will not be delivering babies. So why should I, as a true cardio nerd, pay attention to or even care about this topic? Well, I'm just going to stop you there. Half the population is women. The vast majority of women in our society become mothers at some point in their life. And presumably, all of you had one. As a physician and cardiologist, even if you do not see pregnant patients in your practice, the role of pregnancy in predicting women's future risk of cardiovascular disease is a critical fund of knowledge that is rapidly evolving. You will need it. And as the science builds, specific to cardio B, more attention will be paid to cardiovascular risk management in the preconception phase, especially among women with known heart disease. And as a cardiologist, you will be called upon to address complications that occur during pregnancy and increasingly be asked to assess and proactively reduce long-term cardiovascular risk after pregnancy. Our goal for this series? Raise awareness about the intersection between pregnancy and cardiovascular issues and improve your comfort around caring for women who have had or are at risk for cardio-OB problems. You do not have to be an expert to know how and when to engage the cardio-OB heart team. All you cardio nerds need to pay attention. And as you take advantage of the medical expertise of the participants in this series, I hope you will also take advantage of the expertise that your patients can provide you, either individually or through Women Heart's trained patient advocates, its champions. I have learned much and have often been humbled by the knowledge, advocacy, bravery, and persistence of women with heart disease and Women Heart champions and many of my patients. Be open to those insights and learning. To learn more about Women Heart and how it can support your women patients or to help you do so, or to offer to volunteer or donate, go to womenheart.org. Thank you and enjoy the Cardio OB series.